rightly interpreting God's Word. This is Abounding Grace Radio with Pastor Chris Gordon. for tuning in today to Abounding Grace Radio. We are grateful you take time out of your day to tune into the program. Please visit us on the web at agradio.org. That web address again is agradio.org. Our number is 888-504-8805. 888-504-8805. Find us on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. Well, today we have the privilege of having with us uh, Dr. R. Scott Clark, Professor of Church History and Historical Theology at Westminster Seminary. We've had Dr. Clark on the program before, and we are all Always thankful to have him on the program to listen to his insights and help us wrestle through some challenging issues that we have to deal with as pastors, especially as Dr. Clark is in the particular business of helping to train ministers to preach the gospel. What a wonderful calling, and we are so thankful to have him back on the program. Dr. Clark, thank you for being here. Hi, Chris. Thank you. I'm always glad to be here. Maybe begin by uh, just giving us a little bit of an update, telling us, uh, the listeners here, a little bit about you. Uh, We've had you here on the program before, but uh, I, I think it's helpful to give us a little background on Dr. R. Scott Clark and uh, what you do at Westminster Seminary and maybe a little bit, tell us a little about Westminster. Well, I teach at Westminster Seminary, California. So here we are in Escondido. Uh, I suppose the big news right now is we're in the process of uh, building housing. And if you drive by the seminary or or look at the website, you can see a a video or drive by and you can see the progress. Uh, It's actually rising up from the ground. They're framing, they're putting roofs on things. And so, uh, Lord willing, uh, late spring or or this summer, or certainly by fall for next academic year, we'll have housing on campus for students. And so uh, we've been here in uh, San Marcos and Escondido since 1980. And this is the first time we've actually had our own housing. So we're very excited about that. We're we're going to be creating an on-campus community, and uh, it's been the community's been great. Uh, we students have always been able to find housing in town, but now we're most of our students are going to be together uh, on campus, and, and we think that will be a blessing for them and uh, really improve the sense of community and give them a chance to grow and um, and leave here even more mature and even more prepared to fulfill their vocation. Uh, about 70% of our students are headed for pastoral ministry, so and the rest are headed uh, either on to further academic work. We send people to some of the best universities in the world to do doctoral work and to go on to teach. We send some off to be elders, uh, some to be missionaries, counselors, uh, Christian school teachers. Uh, so that's, that's what, what we do, and, and what I do is I teach history there. Uh, I teach courses on the confessions, the Reformed confessions. I teach courses on the ancient church, which is what I'm doing right now this semester. And um, I teach courses on the medieval church, Reformation church, and then the 17th century uh, theology, piety, and practice. And it's it's been an honor to to be here. This is my twenty first year. So. Twenty twenty one years. Wow. <laughs> when you came, I had hair. So that, <laughs> I think I don't know. When I came, it was dark hair. Too. So well, now it's no hair. So. <laughs> well, hey, I'm so thankful to have you back on the program. Uh, you that was kind of a natural lead to what I want to discuss with you today. 
you you know scott that we love to discuss on abounding grace radio issue issues pertaining to the ministry uh having christians think about uh what the gospel ministry should be as the lord commissioned it and gave it to us in the scriptures particularly too in light of what you're doing uh at westminster seminary in in training pastors uh to go out and to be faithful to this calling that the lord has given them one of the challenges that we face today uh, and I, I, th- I think everyone knows, every listener knows this challenge. We're facing many social struggles in our day out in the culture. And this puts a certain amount of pressure on us as pastors, how best to be faithful to our callings in light of these these struggles that we have. I mean, think of, uh, of all of them that are in front of us today. We have struggles um, with racism, we, uh, uh, racial struggles that are going on in our country. And that's that's been going on a long time, but we've seen it all come to a head again as of recent. Uh, we deal with issues of poverty. Uh, you know, as Christians, we care a lot about the issue of, of abortion and the fact that, that babies are aborted. Uh, we have environmental struggles that people are interested in, a sexual revolution. All these issues are constantly coming at us. Um, doesn't that pose a particular challenge for us as pastors today? And how much, maybe you can throw this in, how much should pastors be dealing with these particular issues and how best to do that? I know that's a loaded question, <laughs> but let's just start with that loaded question. Well, it's a, it is a challenge. And the good news is, in a sense, that it's always been a challenge, that there, there were a lot of uh, social questions that existed in the first century. So let's put this in the biblical context. You know, it's it's easy to look around at, at our world and say, well, you know, things have never been this bad. It's terrible, and and uh, you know, we need the preachers to speak up and address these things and fix it. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, nobody puts it quite that way, but but I sometimes There's an assumption there. people think that way. And the truth is, if you go back and look at the first century culture, uh, there were tensions between Jews and Gentiles, and, and even between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, but there were uh, tensions between Jews who rejected Jesus as the Messiah and, and, uh, and those Jews who did accept Jesus as Messiah. There were tensions between the uh, pagans, the Greeks and the Romans, or the Greco-Roman pagans, which was the predominant culture culture, who, uh, if they even knew about the Christians, uh, were either suspicious of them, dismissive of them, or hostile toward them. Uh, mostly they were ignorant, but when they came you know, across a Christian or a group of Christians, then there was suspicion and hostility, and, and, and uh, there were all kinds of social issues going on. There were Jewish revolutionaries in the first century who wanted uh, in Judea, Jerusalem, what we sometimes today call Palestine, wanted to throw the uh, Roman occupiers out, and they wanted uh, Jesus. One of the reasons w- uh, why Jesus was abandoned was because when he came in uh, on the uh, 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 riding on a donkey, people thought, "Well, this is it, right?" On Palm Sunday, and th- he he's going to begin the revolution. And of course, mm. when he didn't inaugurate the kind of revolution, and of course Jesus had been inaugurating a revolution all along, uh, he said, "Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand." That was a revolutionary thing to say, and. People completely misunderstood what the kingdom was. They kept uh, the disciples kept asking, you know, well, now are you going to bring about this glorious earthly kingdom and restore everything to Israel and throw out the Romans? And and Jesus, in effect, said, you you don't quite understand what my mission is. And and uh, when it became evident that uh, he wasn't going to bring about the kind of glorious revolution on the earth or in Jerusalem that they wanted, of course, you know what happened. They cried for Barabbas and uh, and they crucified Jesus. All right. So. 
there have been lots of social issues. There was slavery in the first century, not quite the same kind of slavery that the uh, Anglo-American world practiced, the British uh, Empire and the American colonies and later the United States practiced. Uh, but there was slavery and, and there was oppression. And so then if, if we think about those kinds of issues and then ask, well, what does the New Testament actually say about the prevailing social problems of the day. There was abortion in the first century. We, we have records of, of people talking about chemical abortions. Uh, I don't, I'm not aware uh, whether, there, whether surgical abortions were widespread, but certainly there were formulas that people made to try to induce abortion chemically. And um, so those kinds of things were, were present. Uh, sexual immorality was widespread. I doubt the listener understands how prevalent pornography was in its own way in the first century. Uh, one of our faculty, Steve Baugh, is a scholar, a world-recognized uh, expert on Ephesus, and he has described to me uh, some of the graphic sexual depictions in Ephesus. And you could come to town, and there were drawings on a wall with arrows pointing, and if this is what you're looking for, this is where you go to get it. And and so the things that we find shocking and should find shocking existed in the first century. Um, and Paul does speak to them in, in a general way, and the scriptures do speak to them in a general way, but I don't see a great deal of emphasis or that is to say much emphasis at all in the New Testament uh, about speaking to whether the church, or illustrating or, or demonstrating that the church was speaking to the broader culture outside of the visible institutional church. What I see is the Apostle Paul talking to people who confess Christ and instructing them how to regard one another and how they ought to regard people outside the church and how they ought to treat people. But there are no social manifestos in the New Testament. Uh, there just aren't. There, are, there are no letters to the governors. Right. Uh, the various opportunities that uh, it's the, remarkable, isn't it? That it's just not there. The Apostle Paul had opportunities to raise these questions with civil authorities. He never did. Uh, what he did was call them to repentance and faith, uh, and prepare himself to be martyred, which uh, church church tradition tells us uh, happened on the Appian Highway around 65 A.D. outside of Rome. I'm always reminded that the, this is what the Pharisees tried to do to Jesus, actually, was box him in. Uh, you, you, I'm thinking of the tax issue, you know, should, should we pay uh, taxes to Caesar or not? Tell us, you know, <laughs> we want to know. We know the goal behind that was for him to say, no, reject authority so that they could uh, pitch him as an insurrectionist and have him come under Caesar's condemnation. I mean, th they were trying to do this to Jesus, and Jesus answered so wisely. And I guess that's what we're trying to think about, how best to, to think through these issues. And you should say what the answer was. What did Jesus say? Yeah, what, well, he said pay. Pay what? Give to Caesar what, what is, is Caesar's, Caesar's and give to God God's, what is what, God's. Yeah. And, and thereby making a fundamental distinction in spheres. Yes. Right? And, right. So, and Paul does give us instruction about how to relate to the civil authorities. Romans 13, people just dismiss that, but it's the word of God. And right. Romans 13 says, pay taxes to civil authorities, obey right. civil authorities. Right. Honor right. them. Honor civil authorities. And he, he calls Nero... Right. So when Paul wrote Romans, uh, Nero was was very a uh, very young man, but uh, he was a very unbelieving man, uh, uh, and he became a truly disgusting pagan, even to other pagans. Uh, 
Right. right. He was he was a pagan, but he became even more morally offensive than he was as a young man uh, to to other pagans. And Paul calls him God's minister. I know it's just a remarkable, remarkable passage that all Christians need to consider. I mean, the only thing Jesus ever says about a political official is in uh, Luke uh, thirteen thirty two, and he said to them, "Go and tell that fox," yeah, Herod. meaning Herod. <laughs> right. So there's a little dig at Herod, and and right. that's. Romans 13 and and here in Luke 13 and you know render under Caesar what is Caesar's and under God what is God's that's about the extent of the what we might call the social teaching relative to the right. world outside of the visible institutional church now that's not to say that scripture doesn't speak to the the way these issues sort of influence the visible church right and and so you know we could look at a passage uh, like Galatians 3:28 where you know Paul does speak to the way we ought to think about one another uh, as uh, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Right. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So people who are united to Christ by grace alone through faith alone. We form a community that is distinct from the prevailing community outside the world, the broader culture, because the broader culture identifies itself as Greek, or as he says in Colossians, Scythian. And the Greeks called the, everyone else who wasn't Greek, they called them barbarians. And so Paul uses that word. And the Jews said, we're Jews, and you are all unclean, all of you who are not Jews. And Paul says, you know what? And he says this in Ephesians uh, 2, the dividing wall in Christ has been broken down. And there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, and uh, females were regarded by the pagans as sort of subordinate, sub, almost subhuman, not quite subhuman, but as lesser people. And Paul says, no, females are not lesser people. He, females, because he knew uh, Genesis 2, male and female, he made them, right? right? He made them good and in his image. So uh, Paul is looking at us through biblical lenses, indistinct from the pagans, um, the surrounding you know pagan culture, and that's where we are. We have a, a Christian minority in the United States, surrounded by effectively a pagan minority that doesn't look at the world through the lenses of God's word. Okay, that's that's very helpful. And I want to now think a little bit. Then, in light of all of that, all that background, that's very helpful background to think about in light of what the New Testament has shown us. I'm a pastor. Uh, you're a pastor. Uh, we went into this uh, on, with great conviction that we were to preach the word in season, out of season, particularly as Paul uh, captured, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. So, so I, I w I'm very sensitive to that as a pastor. I, I, I think the Lord has made very clear what is our duty. But now with all these challenges, I hear so many things, Scott, that come at me as a pastor. You know, you're not really being faithful as a pastor, if you're not addressing these issues from the pulpit, you're not really being a faithful minister if you're not condemning all of this stuff that's going on. And, and listen, I, we, we've talked about this before on the program. I, I believe in preaching the law. I, I believe in preaching what is right and what is wrong. But I have an ultimate goal to, to preach Jesus. So how, how am I to sort of mind all of this and get through all of this with all these pressures on me today? Help help. Christians who are thinking, well, that's probably what we need to be doing as the churches today in light of this mess, fixing this culture, fixing these problems. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if the culture is going to be fixed, it's going to be fixed by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, right? That's that's how this is going to happen. It's, it's not going to happen by 
you know, a, a seven-point plan, uh, a series of 12 sermons, uh, you know, th- that just isn't the way uh, it works. Uh, we, this culture, our culture, in which you and I live, is in absolute need of the sovereign, powerful, gracious, un- unexpected, marvelous, unconditional work of the Holy Spirit. When you, mm-hmm. Some people would, you know, talk about revival and, you know, we... I'm not crazy about that way of talking, but but whatever we want to call it, that's what we need. Uh, until God the Spirit uh, opens people's hearts, convicts them of sin, opens their eyes, opens their ears, gives them a new heart, a new mind, um, and, and true, new life and true faith in Christ, nothing is really going to change. And the government can't change people's hearts. The government's job, as, as I understand Scripture, is to punish evildoers and restrain wickedness. And, and, and so that's what we pray for, that the government would restrain wickedness and, and punish lawbreakers and, and um, leave the fixing of hearts to the Holy Spirit. Now, what, so what should we be doing or saying? Well, ha- having said what I said before and having said what I just said now, let, let me also add this. It is true that in the 1950s and 60s, when the Civil Rights Movement began to uh, percolate and began to grow from the the ground up and and people began to see that there are real manifest injustices um, uh, you know there were Christians who for fear of getting overly involved in in the civil affairs or uh, you know or for out of fear of falling into a, a serious error that developed in the 1920s called the social gospel we can come back to that and talk about what that was I but, do. I don't want to come but, back. but we did lose in the social gospel the listener should know we did lose the gospel um, the 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 social gospel ultimately was social but no gospel it's a Christless message there's uh, there's nothing about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, the the, the uh, formulator of that, the chief proponent of that, Walter Rauschenbusch, was, uh, comes out of a tradition called pietism, and uh, it comes out of a tradition that was very much like American evangelicalism. Uh, he was a Baptist minister. His dad was a Baptist uh, minister, and uh, they, he came out of a family and a tradition that loved the Lord, loved the Word, but was very focused on religious experience. And effectively what Rauschenbusch did was to take that desire that for a religious experience and tra- retranslate it and say no fixing the world and and to be let's be clear about this the the con- conditions that Rauschenbusch was facing in the 1920s in Hell's Kitchen in New York City were di- dire they were beyond anything most of us have ever seen you you could go to some of the poorest counties in the in the Appalachian mountains and not see the kind of absolute squalor and poverty and you know deprivation that you would see in Hell's Kitchen in the 1920s so it was you had tenement buildings with dozens of people living in a single apartment uh, no plumbing uh, uh, food and water shortages, disease, uh, death. It was I mean, it was really dark. So one can certainly understand why Rauschenbusch would have gone this way. But in redefining the gospel, he, he lost it. So out of fear of falling into that error, uh, many conservative uh, Bible-believing Christians didn't say anything about racism. And, and there was, and more to the point, there was racism in the church, and, and there still is. But there was racism, overt racism in the church in the 1950s and 60s. And 
no, and many Bible-believing Christians didn't say anything. Either they didn't think it was an issue, they didn't see it, or they were afraid of falling into the social gospel. So we, on the one hand, we want to keep the gospel. We can't, we're no good to anyone if we lose the gospel. But at the same time, um, when there's sin in our congregations, whatever's happening in the outside world, when there's sin in our congregations, we do have to address that. And so that's what the law of God does. It convicts us. It exposes our sin. And and one of the sins, you know, that we sort of privileged in some ways in middle class, middle class, middle America, uh, white suburbia in the 1950s, 40s, 50s, and and, and 60s uh, that we were sometimes reluctant to address, often reluctant to address, was the sin of racism of thinking that the people who look like me are better than people who don't look like me. Right. I mean, that's the essence of racism, and just assuming that people who don't look like I do, or come from a different place than I do, have a different ethnicity than I do, um, that those people are somehow inferior to me. And uh, that really did exist, and uh, we really are culpable in a sense, or were culpable, for, for not addressing that sin forthrightly. And we left it to uh, people like Dr. King to address that sin. And whatever we might say about his theology, we might have some criticisms and uh, you know, uh, we might have some differences in, in ways of putting things. Uh, to his credit, he did call us to repentance. He, he did stand up and he did say, look, you know, as Christians, we cannot be involved in racism. We ought to, we must repent of racism. And so that gets us back to Galatians 3.28. He was in effect calling us to realize in the churches the reality that there is no Jew, no Gentile, no male, no free, no African, no, no Caucasian, Right? No Asian, no Hispanic. Um, we obviously we come out of those backgrounds. We have those cultural backgrounds, but those are not the things in the church that define us. Right, and I'm reminded that uh, of what Martin Lloyd Jones once said that you know it was this social gospel preaching that emptied the churches uh, in Great Britain. Uh, so so there's already been an experiment, and this was this had a terrible effect there. And we need to think about these things of what it's going to do to the church today. But well, it's I'm, already doing it. It's, yeah. it's already happened. I mean, yeah. look at the mainline churches right. since the 1960s, uh, 50s and 60s at least. And, and it's been chronicled since the 70s that the mainline churches, so the seven churches of the mainline, the United, the, the, the PCUSA, the United Methodist Churches, the United Churches of Christ, and uh, the Episcopal Church USA, so those, the old mainline churches, they're all losing about 70,000 members a year. Yeah, this is happening right in front so of us. So it's happening. Yeah, right. the, 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 literally, they have empty churches that in, blessedly in some cases are being re-inhabited by people who believe the Bible, but tragically in other cases, the Buildings are are as is as is happening in uh, England are being converted to other purposes. You know, uh, ten years ago, uh, empty English churches were being turned into internet cafes. Today, empty English churches are being turned into mosques. So, so there's there's a fundamental difference then when we're talking about preaching gospel, what Jesus has done, and the law that confronts our sin and shows us the problem of our hearts. There's a fundamental difference from that. Which, which is the design of ministry, law and gospel, we've talked about these two words before, as opposed to dragging in the social justice and even social gospel, maybe you could help make a distinguish there or help us with those terms, yeah. dragging in the world struggle that way into the church and pastors making that the church's objective as different 
from preaching these two words of law and gospel with the goal of announcing forgiveness of sins. There's a fundamental difference there, isn't there? Well, uh, there really is. And and th- this is huge. The, the church is always tempted to baptize another agenda, whatever that is. So in the health and wealth churches, right, they baptize uh, the American agenda of being successful, being wealthy, having it all. You know, there's a certain pastor in Houston who wants you to have your best life now, and he's offering it to you, and you can have it for twenty nine ninety five cents now before midnight, slightly higher west of the Rockies. No COD. Click on this link. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we're always tempted. And one of the things that I think we're tempted to baptize and to, to make into a Christian agenda item is the social justice uh, agenda. Now, uh, should there be, by some definition, social justice? Sure. Yeah. Um, nobody doubts that. But the question is, whose justice uh, and uh, and who's supposed to achieve that? And and what is what hath the church to do with social justice? You know, Tertullian, uh, the great uh, Latin theologian, uh, North African theologian in the early third century, brilliantly asked, "What ha- hath Athens to do with Jerusalem?" And what he was asking is, "What does the Christian faith have to do with paganism?" These are uh, two fundamentally different principles, and he wanted to uh, he wanted us to think critically and not just to adopt. Uh, pagan ways of thinking and and baptize them. That's what he was calling us to to uh, think about, and that we have to do that with the social justice agenda as well, because the social justice agenda, as it comes to us now, doesn't come out of Scripture necessarily. Um, it doesn't even come from historic Christianity, at least not the way that it's being mediated to us now from certain portions of the culture. It comes from uh, a nineteenth century um, a philosopher named Karl Marx who had an eschatology, and he had a, an analysis of the way society works and, and the, the, how it's divided, how it's organized, and, and he had a, a vision for the future. And that's how he defines social justice, is those structures that help to bring about, and, that, and a certain consciousness that helps to bring about a future realization of social justice. And so simply because somebody says, you know, we need to be concerned about social justice, the church needs to address social justice, uh, we as Christians need to be critical about everything that, that people tell us that they want us to do. When I say critical, I don't mean negative. I mean we have to think carefully about right. it and evaluate it. Right. And ask where does this come from and what what are we talking about and and what definitions are we using well we'll return to this issue of the gospel ministry and social justice next time we hope this helped you to wrestle through these issues and thanks so much today for tuning in to abounding grace radio thank you for listening to abounding grace radio with pastor chris gordon call us toll free at 888-504-8805 that's 888-504-8805 contact us through the web at agradio.org that's agradio.org we're on facebook look for abounding grace radio ministry listen daily on this station and subscribe in itunes or use our free android app we trust this program has encouraged you to trust in christ for your standing with God and to live in His abounding grace.